Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing. What's the situation with gun crime in Canada and Canada's firearms legislation today? And how does it compare to what's going on in the United States? Invariably, it seems that whenever a big shooting happens, a mass shooting in a school, at a religious facility, wherever, it happens in the United States, and they talk about guns, gun culture, gun laws, gun crime, of course. But then we mimic them and we do the same up here. We piggyback on our conversation. Does that make sense? And in what environment are we having those conversations? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau certainly thinks it makes sense because right after the Uvalde, Texas school shooting, he brought in proposed legislation surrounding gun laws. He says we need it in Canada because it would reduce gun crime and save lives. But will it? What do we need to do in Canada to deal with prospective gun crime? Our guest today is one of the country's top experts on firearms legislation in Canada. Gary Mauser is Professor Emeritus at the Beattie School of Business and Institute for Canadian Urban Research Studies at Simon Fraser University. He joins us now. Professor Mauser, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How would you describe the situation in the United States when it comes to gun laws and gun culture compared to how it is here in Canada? What, what are the right ways to compare and contrast? Well, first of all, in Canada, firearms are very heavily regulated. There is no constitutional right to own a firearm to protect yourself or your family. There's no right to own a firearm uh, or any weapon for that matter in the United States, uh, which is still suffering from the problems of uh, slavery uh, over 150 years ago. There is intense problems with gang crime, criminal violence, out of control, and we don't just don't have that kind of problem in, in Canada. We do have basically the same patterns of criminal violence. For example, most of the homicides in both Canada and the U.S. are driven by criminals who are hurting, attacking, killing other criminals. That's true in both countries. Second kind of pattern that's similar is domestic violence, where uh, drunken, drugged, angry people hurt their spouses. Again, most of these are, are uh, people with criminal records, both accused and victims. So there are similarities and differences. So what's interesting is the, the situations you describe are generally not the scenarios that provoke the national conversations about gun control. The, the gang line shootings where we hear statistics out of a city like, like Detroit or Chicago where they had this number of shootings or murders on this particular weekend. What sparks the national conversations are when someone goes into a school and kills a dozen people when they go into a church, a mosque, a synagogue, and they do a shooting. Those are the events that I think end up spurring these conversations. Exactly right. Um, it should be no surprise that media reports do not reflect reality. Um, media, of course, thrives on excitement, on uh, the unexpected, the bizarre. And so, of course, that is what drives the crime debate. Uh, mass shootings, particularly mass public shootings in or out of schools, 
constitute something like 5% of all the shootings, I mean, murders in the United States and 2% in Canada. So these are clearly very small um, um, amounts of, of, of activities. On the other hand, they demand the headlines. And part of the reason I think that gun control comes up uh, in response to these rare events is that underlying the event is police and administrative incompetence in both Canada and the United States. And that, of course, is not something the government would like widely known. Uh, I'd like to tease that out a bit more in detail in a few moments. But back to what you were saying about the statistics, I don't think people would be surprised to hear, well, okay, the shooting deaths, the majority of them are the gangland murders or what have you. And okay, school shootings are only 5% of all numbers, but we want to eliminate that 5%. We want to do what we can to get those numbers to, to pretty much zero because, okay, these gang guys, all right, live by the sword, die by the sword. We wish it wasn't happening, but we kind of know why it was. The school shootings, none of them should be happening full stop, which is, I think, what animates people to say, we got to do something to get rid of these. And well, you know, guns are involved in these crimes, obviously, and guns are things that are regulated. So let's look at this as a pathway to get out of this. That's um a very frequent scenario, but if you remember, there was a uh, insane person who drove a, a truck down through a crowded Toronto street. There was an angry, uh, insane fellow in Minnesota who drove an SUV through a, a packed party. There were people who set fire to crowded theaters and crowded uh, bars. There's lots of ways to do mass public killing besides guns. Um, one of the problems, of course, is that when people say, my goodness, we should do something, uh, it, immediately partisan differences show up in, as to what should that something be. And so both in the U.S. and in Canada, there are battles between policymakers and politicians uh, trying to figure out what is the... the uh, uh, option that will get a majority. And that's that's often stymied, uh, again, in the United States more than Canada. But essentially, there's a partisan battle and that squashes uh, action. What should be done then in the United States when it comes to these mass shootings? I mean, there's, there's always the feeling we got to do something here. And one can certainly appreciate that. I mean, a bunch of children were just killed and it's natural for human beings to say, we got to do something to prevent this from happening again. Well, for example, in the recent Texas school shooting, the, the Democrats come out and, and say that we should ban guns. We should ban this kind of gun, ban that type of gun. And the Republicans say, well, we should train school personnel so that they could be able to defend themselves, to know what's going on. If the police, as demonstrated in this Texas shooting, do not act properly, do not know what to do, then certainly we should have, That's certainly that is a, a, a clear example that we should have trained the teachers better, trained the citizens better. In fact, the citizens were making efforts to rescue their kids, to stop the shooting, uh, and the police hindered them. Uh, so 
again, we get these two policy efforts, some kind of gun ban versus some kind of arming the citizens or arming teachers. And as you can see, those are intense partisan differences. Professor, I'm interested in your thoughts as to why we have different gun cultures right now in terms of persons in the United States, it seems generally troubled young men, who believe that this is a thing they should do as a solution to their woes. I remember uh, the late columnist Walter Williams, uh, an economist as well, I, I vividly remember some stories that he wrote about how in the 1950s, I believe, when he was in junior high or high school, they were all assigned rifles. And I think the rules were, and they did shooting practice like at lunchtime or after school or something like that. And the rule was basically put this in your locker. I don't want to see you monkeying around with these guns and I don't make sure they're not loaded when they're locker or something like that. I don't even know if the locker had locks on it and nobody ever shot anybody. So basically you had these, these, these pubescent boys who were assigned firearms by the state or by the school and they didn't shoot each other. Now I appreciate they're not these high-octane automatic weapons, but still, they didn't even... I'm sure there was one or two incidents, but they didn't have major problems. And Walter Williams, I guess, was giving this story to say there's just something different in the culture now as well, where young men are saying, this is something I'm going to do. What's going on there? I think you put your finger on it. The problem is troubled young men and the uh, community culture in which they uh, grow up. Um, it had exists, of course, in both countries, Canada and the U.S. Uh, the question is, how do you deal with uh, troubled young men? What creates the troubles that these young men are, find themselves immersed in? And what can we do about it? Um, I mean, look around at our economy. We have common two income earning people in a family. They abandon their children all day. The state, the school runs the uh, parenting that the parents no longer supply. Uh, we have a huge number of immigrants who just arrive in our country and aren't given adequate services or introductions. So it's no surprise that we have troubled youngsters, both in the US and Canada. And the, so the question is, how can we solve this problem? And, and that is much more difficult than having some simplistic idea of banning left-handed guns or big ones or little ones or pink ones or whatever. Would it be even possible in the U.S. to do something serious about banning guns, even if you really wanted to, just because of how many there are? I mean, there's just so many firearms all throughout the United States. No, uh, I think you're right. It would be impossible to ban it, uh, not only because of the numbers, but because of the gun culture uh, and also the Constitution, which Americans, unlike Canadians, take their Constitution seriously. Uh, Americans have the right to own guns to defend themselves and their family or their political rights. This is something that uh, is unique to the United States. So if there was a determined effort by any state or national authority to ban and, and confiscate guns, the, the public would react and uh, not allow it. It would not happen. We'll be back with more full comment with Gary Mauser in just a moment. Professor Mauser, we were talking about the the high volume of firearms that are in the United States, but I think one thing that might surprise Canadians, and it surprised me when I when I finally learned about the data, is there are a lot of people in Canada who do have gun licenses. Something like over two million uh, men and women are licensed firearm owners. 
That's right. 2.2 million uh, Canadians have licenses to own firearms. And that's more than people who are active playing golf or even active playing hockey. Uh, and that's an underestimate. Um, Angus Reid did two national polls. And while the details are hidden in the uh, de demographic pages, not up front, he found 4 million Canadians admit to owning a firearm. Oh, would that be licensed then? What, like the 2.2 million number is an estimation and then 4 million, are uh, some uh, of those 2. people... 2.2 million, I'm sorry. 2.2 million is the number of licenses registered with the RCMP. 4 million is the estimate in public opinion polls. So would the difference there be people who have firearms illegally or people who are licensed but just haven't showed up in those tallies? Um, it's illegal. It's illegal to have a firearm and not uh, have, it, have a firearms license to have it. However, there's an ambiguity in what, what having a firearm means. Uh, it is perfectly reasonable for a family to have one licensed firearm owner, but everybody in the family have access to it to say, to shoot pests on the crops or to, to have access to, in case they, their house is attacked by, by a, a bear or a, a thug or something. So some people might think they have a firearm when in fact they have illegal access to it, but it's not uh, strictly speaking all that legal. And of these millions of people with firearms, what types of firearms would you say they have by and large? Um, almost all of these firearms are long guns. That is to say rifles or shotguns. And almost all of them are used for hunting or uh, pest protection in rural areas. Uh, about a quarter of the firearms in Canada are semi-automatic which means one trigger pull, one shot, and then the gun self-loads. So another trigger pull, another shot, as opposed to some other kind of action. What is the annual number of gun crimes in Canada? Someone getting injured or killed because of a firearm, whether it's, it's a legal or an illegal one. I'm sure we'll talk about that data next in a moment. It's roughly 3% of all violent crimes have a gun somewhere close and about one percent of all violent crime a gun is used to injure somebody and there's a couple hundred thousand violent crimes each year i don't have their number off the top of my head and then i know we have subsequent statistics that have come out i believe from the rcmp talking about how of those numbers an even smaller percentage of that a much smaller percentage is legally owned and licensed firearms. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. I've submitted a two separate uh, special requests to Stats Canada to find out how many uh, accused murderers have a firearms license. And what I found is that the firearms homicide rate for PAL holders, firearms license holders, is about one third the Canadian homicide rate. In other words, about 12 licensed firearms owners each year are accused of murder out of the 2.2 million. So that means that 
licensed firearms owners are statistically less likely to be involved in a gun crime? That's right. That's a really interesting statistic. And if you look at uh, the police and border authorities, they uh, admit, uh, often you have to push them, but they admit that the crimes are with guns are committed with illegally held guns. And that most of these illegally held guns, 86%, according to the to two or three Toronto police chiefs in, in subsequent uh, years, 86% are smuggled in from the states. So this brings us to the political angle, the legislation angle. Prime Minister Justin <laughs> Trudeau, in the wake of the Texas school tragedy, announces Bill C-21, which proposes a number of things, one of which is to put a freeze on licensed gun owners from being able to purchase new handguns. What are your thoughts on this legislation? Well, this is a very interesting, if cynical, political trick. Um, the prime minister is playing on the general ignorance of his supporters, and uh, he is essentially gaslighting law-abiding gun owners. And he, he knows he knows this is not going to work, but it will galvanize his supporters. And he hopes to prod the conservatives into defending law-abiding gun owners, which he hopes will, again, galvanize his supporters. And what I find so interesting is simultaneous to Bill C-21 being introduced, there's another piece of legislation winding its way through Parliament called Bill C-5, which actually decreases the punishments that people will face for gun crimes. That's right. That's right. Uh, C-5 reduces not only the minimum crime uh, time that one could charge for a violent offender, but for gun crimes and even smuggling crimes. Yeah, I understand that there was a mandatory minimum for three years for somebody who has been convicted of either gun smuggling or selling illegal guns. Now, I appreciate that there's a legal debate as to whether or not mandatory minimums are appropriate at all and whether or not it should entirely be judicial discretion. But I do think, okay, three years, and then we know actually it's not a full three years served because of how the system works. So it's probably two years or a year and a half or whatever. And one goes, well, if we really are that horrified by gun crimes, and if we are acknowledging that illegal guns is a problem and gun smuggling is a problem, like why are we lessening the sentences? Well, this is part of progressive dogma that if someone uh, non-white is accused of a crime, it must it must be somebody else's fault. That it's colonialism, it's racism, and of course, only white people can be racist, or it is the system's fault, and it and therefore, if there is a disparity in the number of uh, acu accusations made against. Uh, people of color, then they must be uh, excused. And that means, in practically speaking, bail conditions are minimized and uh, sentences are reduced or, or not acted upon. I know the prime minister has cited over-representation of, of some uh, demographics as a justification for all of this. I also know statistics do indicate that, uh, for instance, uh, First Nations persons who are charged with murder, primarily the majority of victims are First Nations persons who are victims. So one thing, you're lessening crimes for, okay, charges against a First Nations person, but you're also lessening the punishment someone receives uh, for murdering a First Nations person. Uh, 
there is a problem with prisons and punishment for any race, for any ethnicity. People who go into prison rarely come out for the better. Hmm. Uh, if prison is supposed to rehabilitate, supposed to rescue a troubled soul, then that's not working. Uh, so this general problem is certainly true for Aboriginal people, for for new immigrants to Canada. It also is a problem for anybody else as well. The problem is in the prisons and how they operate. The problem is how one deals with people who are violent, um, just eliminating sentences on the argument that if they go in, they come out worse, and they must come out at some point. Uh, that's short-sighted thinking because victims uh, who are outside suffer from having violent criminals come back to them. Professor Mauser, I want to get your thoughts more on the border problem because I do think that a lot of the responses to Bill C-21 have been people rolling their eyes. And I don't just mean people who have been long familiar with the gun statistics or people who are firearms owners themselves, but even from uh, to sort of stereotype like the the downtown elites who don't know firearms owners, but they now know, come on, they're all coming across the border. That's where these guns are from, the illegal firearms. That's the ones being used in crime because people have been saying this fact for years now. And I think uh, people who are not even a part of the gun community have internalized it. So I think we've established for many people, yes, the border is a problem. I don't hear much discussion of what the granular details are, though, to to stop this. What do you think are some of the things that should be done uh, to put a pause on illegal firearms coming into Canada? Do we just need to get more CBSA officers opening the trunks of various vehicles? No, I don't think so. I think it's much more uh, uh, widespread than that. Most of the captures that uh, the border people catch now are ignorant, innocent Americans who are used to carrying their guns across the state lines, but think that the going into Canada is no different. And so they capture these uh, basically responsible people who may have the, the permit from their state that they come from, but not the Canadian permit. What needs to be done is vastly improve the border security. At the recent uh, House of Commons Security Committee, the border people spoke up and said that trains and shipment manifests need to be checked much better. There was, there are now virtually no inspection of incoming shipments by train. Most, I mean, first of all, the border is, is billions of dollars coming across it uh, every day. And we need some kind of sophisticated effort to screen these because obviously one can't do more than random sample in a thorough way. So manifests need to be checked much more thoroughly than what they are now. This costs money. This involves training. And second, we need to uh, focus the police on what is needed, train the police, and uh, the police need to understand that the uh, law-abiding licensed Canadian gun owners are a resource, are an asset, and not a problem. So if, they fo- if the top brass focuses their direction in the right 
uh, way, then these problems could be solved. So by way of example, you're saying that basically how so many illegal firearms are getting into Canada is that somebody will get a box marked computer parts or kids toys, but the box is actually full of guns and you get a shipping company to take it across in a truck and it's with a bunch of other goods that are perhaps uh, legal goods and as legitimately labeled. And then there you go. That's how it enters. And we don't open every box. That's correct. And and remember, Canada has a huge problem with uh, illegal drugs. That too is, for the most part, smuggled across the border, and we can't stop that either. So whether we, in fact, can, can eliminate smuggled guns is probably not possible, but we certainly can do a better job. And there's also the other end. Why don't we keep the criminals that we catch with smuggled guns Put them in jail. Why don't we keep them in jail? The the typical anti-racism effort is to bounce them back on the streets and uh, not not put them in jail at all. So there's no punishment for for having or using an illegal gun. Are we doing enough investigative work to track backwards from where the gun came from? So we've got the criminal who has the illegal gun, and presumably quite a few. We go, okay, where did you get this gun from? And I appreciate they may not answer the question when you first ask them, but surely there are policing mechanisms to trace back. You're not stopping it at the border on the truck shipment, but the guy's got it. How did you get it in here? Is not enough, is not enough effort being put into that? That's true. We don't uh, uh, trace a large enough percentage of the guns. Some are pretty obvious and some are traced, but the police trace only if it is uh, necessary for making a conviction. They're not paid to be StatsCan researchers. So this is expensive, time-consuming, and they have other things to do that are more immediately useful. So the budget has to go up, the emphasis has to go up, and this, this is indeed a more complex problem. But, but why should the police do any tracing if the courts are going to let the, the, the malefactor out immediately? Hold on, though. I had assumed that there was some unit, operation, division of people who were fully seconded into looking into this, but you're just saying, no, it's crime by crime. This person's convicted of a charge with murder. Uh, here's their firearm, but there's, there's no real unit that's solely dedicated to dealing with this. It's not quite as organized as you think, although you're right in saying that various, not all police departments have some of these uh, uh, organizations that are dedicated to this. But again, it's very small. It's not sufficient. It's underfunded. Uh, the RCMP puts nowhere near the required amount of money or expertise into this. Professor, where do you think firearms legislation is headed in Canada now, given that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has the backing of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who appears to support this legislation? Regardless of whether or not these sorts of bills do reduce gun crime in Canada, it seems like there's appetite to just further uh, restrict, ban, limit firearms in this country. Well, I think you're right. Uh, With a de facto majority in Parliament, uh, the Trudeau Liberals can pass and enforce whatever legislation they wish, whether it's effective, whether it's wise, or is irrelevant. And therefore, uh, all handguns uh, will be frozen. And uh, the only possible way to change this would be for a new government to be elected, replace the Trudeau Liberals, and uh, uh, pass different legislation nullifying this. 
uh, I think more and more people in Canada, gun owners or not, are are seeing with their own eyes that the government is uh, gaslighting uh, various people and not actually passing legislation that will be effective. Whether people live in uh, big cities or rural Canada, people realize that uh, hunters, smart shooters, honest, law-abiding people are not the problem. Professor Gary Mauser, thanks so much for joining us today with your insights. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.